Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the previous episode, we talked about sexual desire discrepancies, which occur when partners want different amounts of sex in a relationship. In that show, we focused on how to navigate the situation when you're the partner with less sexual desire, which I encourage you to listen to if you haven't already. But today, we're going to focus on the flip side, what to do when you're the partner with more sexual desire. No matter which side of the desire discrepancy you're on, it can be a difficult situation to navigate. But there are a lot of tips and strategies you can explore to help bridge the divide. However, you have to be willing to work together as a team. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Vensil, an assistant professor, board-certified clinical health psychologist, and ASEC-certified sex therapist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She is duly appointed in the Departments of Psychiatry and Psychology, as well as the Division of General Internal Medicine. Dr. Vensil's first popular press book is titled Desire, an Inclusive Guide to Navigating Libido Differences in Relationships, which she co-authored with Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy, who was my guest on the previous episode. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Kinsey Institute's Art and Artifact Collection contains thousands of items from around the world spanning more than 2,000 years of human history. You can check out some of the items in the newly opened Kinsey Institute Gallery on the Indiana University Bloomington campus, which is open to the public from 9.30 to 4, Monday through Friday. You can also find two Kinsey Institute art exhibitions at the Wilsig Erotic Art Museum, located in the heart of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Check the show notes for more information or visit kinseyinstitute.org. Looking to broaden your sexual horizons? Check out Cheeks, a subscription-based sexual wellness platform offering a safe space for both entertainment and education. You'll find sex tutorials and live workshops, in addition to erotic films and audio stories, as well as a taboo-breaking magazine. If you're on the hunt for ethically sourced content that celebrates diversity in all forms, Cheeks has you covered. With my exclusive discount code, LayMiller, my last name, you can try Cheeks for free for seven days when you select the annual subscription option. You can cancel at no cost or switch to the monthly plan at any time during the trial period. The monthly subscription is $14.90 per month, while the yearly subscription is $9.90 per month. Watch, listen, and learn with stimulating erotic content and educational resources. What are you waiting for? Check the show notes for the link or head over to getcheeks.com to start your free trial. That's G-E-T-C-H-E-E-X.com, discount code LEHMILLER, L-E-H Miller. Hi, Jennifer, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. So you recently co-authored a book on navigating libido differences in relationships. Now, we know that this is a super common issue that arises. However, most of the information that's out there on this subject focuses on the partner with lower desire. When the higher desire partner is discussed, they're often problematized for wanting too much sex, or sometimes they're even labeled as sex addicts. I've also seen a lot of people who just seem to be very dismissing of them with their attitude kind of being like, 
So what? You know, you won't die from lack of sex, just masturbate more. Now, I don't think that attitude is particularly helpful because it's not going to do anything to really assist the partners who are struggling with this. So I appreciate that you have a chapter in your book dealing with this issue. So let's dive into that. Now, as a starting point, you begin the chapter with an analogy about the tortoise and the hare. Can you please explain that analogy to us and why it might be a helpful way of thinking about how to navigate desire discrepancies? Yeah, so we have to start with a really important understanding that there is no right or wrong level of libido, right? One's interest in sex differs within oneself over time, across different relationships, over age and context. And so to say that there is one right level of sexual desire is not realistic in terms of what we know about human sexuality. So we have to start from that foundation, right? If we're thinking about the tortoise and the hare analogy, right? What we talk about in the book, Dr. Fogel, Mercy, and I, is the fact that some people might find that in comparison to a partner in particular, they tend to be more on the lower side or more on the higher side. One of the big premises of our book is we're not trying to turn people into more high libido partners or less high libido partners, right? We're trying to really navigate the different discrepancies between partners, acknowledging that it is normal and predictable to have desire differences, particularly in long-term relationships. So if you're somebody who takes a little while to warm up if your libido perhaps is not that frequent or not that reliable or not that predictable for you. We're not necessarily trying to turn you into a person that has sexual desire every single day. In fact, that's probably a pretty unrealistic goal for yourself, right? Or in a sex therapy setting. Similarly, if you're somebody who wants to be sexual every single day, we're not trying to say you can only be sexual once a week or once a month or once a year, right? Also not probably a realistic expectation. So we're not trying to turn tortoises into hares and hares into tortoises. What we are trying to do is make sure that couples and partners have some tools for navigating this relationship difference, this predictable relationship difference, in a way that's not going to cause hostility, resentment, right? Some of those things that start to break down the relationship over time. Yeah. And I totally understand that, appreciate it. And that perspective makes sense. So when talking about sexual desire discrepancies, if you're asked to imagine who the higher desire partner is likely to be, gender stereotypes often enter the picture. You know, people are likely to picture a heterosexual relationship in which a man wants more sex than his female partner. But in reality, sexual desire discrepancies can go in any direction, right? Absolutely. And the research data back this up, although that is not the cultural narrative that we're often fed. <laughs> right. And so desire discrepancies can emerge in same-sex relationships. They, in the context of a heterosexual relationship, could be the woman with the higher desire than the man. It can affect non-binary or trans people. It can really run in any possible direction that you can imagine. So it doesn't always align with people's gender stereotypes or gendered expectations. Yes. In fact, one of the reasons why we were really excited to write this book is we see so many people who are cisgender men, who are non-binary people, who are trans folks in our sex therapy offices saying libido is a concern for me, right? Certainly we see the cisgender heterosexual women also struggling with oftentimes low libido, but just as commonly, I have cisgender heterosexual women in my office saying, I'm the higher libido partner in my relationship. How do I navigate this when my partner is the lower libido person? And so the stereotype we have about gender and sexual interest levels really needs to be rethought and challenged quite a bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. So many things about sex <laughs> need to be rethought and, mm-hmm. and challenged because we have all these ideas about what is typical for people of one sex or gender. And the reality is that it's much more complex and nuanced than the stereotypes tend to let on. Almost always. (laughs) So one of the real strengths we think of this book is that it is written for people of all genders, all sexual orientations, all ages, right? People in all different sorts of relationship structures, monogamous, non-monogamous, with, again, that foundational understanding that desire differences are an expected and predicted part of being in relationships with other people. Yeah, it's normative to not always be on the same page with your partner when it comes to sex. Mm -hmm. Now, as I mentioned a little earlier, partners with higher libido are sometimes shamed for wanting too much sex. Now, as sex educators, we know that libido runs on a spectrum. Some people want little to no sex, whereas other people want it every day. And most people are somewhere in between that. Now, all of those things can be normal and healthy. But as a sex therapist, I'm curious for your take on whether someone's high libido can ever become a cause for concern. So are there any circumstances under which someone with high libido should consider speaking to a professional? Sure. Certainly if it's feeling out of control or what we might call compulsive sexual behavior, right? If it's disrupting work or things in your day-to-day activities, day-to-day life, I would argue as somebody who does a lot of relationship therapy, if it's getting in the way of relationships, right? If it's causing pressure or hostility or resentment in a relationship, that might be time to consider talking to a sexual health specialist or a couples and relationship therapist as well. Yeah. So, I mean, odds are most of the time, your sexual desire is going to be normal, you know, whether it's at the higher or lower end of the spectrum or somewhere in the middle. But there are some cases where it might warrant concern in speaking with a professional, especially, as you mentioned, if it does feel like it's something that is out of control or is otherwise creating issues in your everyday life. You know, for example, somebody with very high levels of desire who maybe feels like it's out of control and then they're going out committing infidelity repeatedly, you know, that could be a sign that, you know, maybe it's time to talk to someone about that particular issue. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay. So let's talk strategies for navigating desire discrepancies when you're the high desire partner. Now, something you talk about in the book is revisiting your own motivations for wanting sex and communicating those to your partner. So can you tell us a little bit about why considering the motivations behind sex is important and how this can be a helpful step in dealing with discrepant desire? Yeah, oftentimes we find that partners have different motivators for being sexual, which should not come as a surprise if we think about all of us as individuals with varying preferences and needs and motivators for behavior. And yet, right, oftentimes in partnerships, we feel like our motivators should be the same or matching with our partners. Most of the time they're not, right? And so whether you find that you're the lower or higher libido partner in your relationship, Understanding why it is that you seek out sexual intimacy becomes really critically important for this process. For many people, that's about just straight up physical pleasure. It feels good for a lot of people to have sex, recognizing that's not always true for everybody. So sometimes physical pleasure is not the motivator. For some people, they are motivated to be sexual because of it creates more emotional connection or closeness in their relationship, or it helps them feel wanted or desired. It fulfills some ego needs that are potentially very healthy, right? For other people, it's a spiritual experience. For some people, they're motivated to be sexual, have orgasms because it helps them sleep better or it reduces pain or headaches, right? So there are so many different motivators for people to seek out sexual intimacy, either by themselves or with a partner, frankly. 
Yeah. And as I've discussed before on a previous episode of this podcast, I interviewed Cindy Meston and we talked about people's reasons for having sex and her study with David Buss, where they found that there were at least 237 distinct reasons for Mm -hmm. wanting to have sex. So people aren't just doing it for one reason. But why is it important to communicate about your motives and what it is that you're really looking for in that moment to a partner? How can that help partners when it comes to bridging a desire discrepancy? It's hard to communicate this if you've never really thought about it. So step one is really kind of doing that introspection or maybe discussion with your partner about what is it that does motivate you. So we have to kind of start there with the introspection, with the understanding of self. When we communicate this with a partner, the idea here is, one, always kind of helping our partner understand that we might be coming from a very different place. That's not bad or good. It just is the nature of being a different individual person in a relationship with another different individual person. And so we want to increase that understanding, hopefully, to really increase the connection there. Yeah, and I think it's also possible that if you're not communicating about the motives and what you're really looking for when it comes to sex, your partner might have very different ideas from that. And so if you get on the same page about, okay, what are we really looking for here? That can also give you more options in terms of how you can connect. Because if somebody's motivation for having sex is really that they just want to feel more intimate or more connected to their partner, then they might not need to have penetrative intercourse, there might be other things that they can do to fulfill that need. And that's why when I talk about, you know, how do you share fantasies with a partner? One of the things I often suggest people do is instead of talking about the specific sex acts, talk about how is it that you want to feel during sex? You know, what is this fantasy really getting at for you? What are the deeper emotional needs? What are the physical sensations you want to experience? And then when you can kind of get on the same page about what everybody wants to feel, then you can kind of craft and create this custom scenario that meets everybody's needs. So, you know, sex doesn't have to be just one thing. And if you think about these motivations and needs, it can be really customizable and dynamic and really suit your purposes in that moment. Exactly. So yes, having the understanding of self, having these conversations with partners, it allows us to start getting creative in a way that our general cultural sexual scripts don't typically allow for or give us permission to do, right? That very traditional narrative of it has to end in orgasms, this very hetero-focused narrative, hetero cis-heteronormative narrative of it has to focus on penis and vagina intercourse, right? There's so many other things that can create connection and feelings of pleasure and potentially get to some of those motivators that are drawing people to the experience. So if we can start to talk about those, we can get really creative, right? Hopefully in a way that can meet motivators for all parties involved. Yeah. And so one of the strategies here is really kind of going off script, you know, not Mm -hmm. following what the cultural scripts or narratives are for how sex is supposed to go, right? Sex isn't supposed to go one way or another. It goes however you and your partner or partners want it to go in that moment. And it can look different from day-to-day or situation to situation. So being creative, flexible, adaptable, and really focusing more on what are the underlying needs and motivations can, I think, be a really useful tool. Now, as I mentioned a little earlier, solo masturbation is often recommended as 
part of the approach here in terms of helping the high desire partner navigate the situation. And there's a section in your book on DIY, do-it-yourself pleasure, <laughs> but it goes well beyond simply suggesting that higher desire partners should masturbate more. It also acknowledges the fact that masturbation in relationships is sometimes a complicated and touchy subject too, right? So giving a blanket recommendation of masturbate more could actually be counterproductive in cases where maybe somebody's relationship agreement, you know, masturbation might not fit within that or masturbating more frequently might not fit within that. So tell us a little bit about how you see the role of self-pleasure in the context of navigating desire discrepancies. Yeah, you're exactly correct in that, right? Like to just have this blanket statement, one size fits all, like go take care of yourself if you're the higher libido partner. For some partnerships, that's great. And that's a wonderful bridge for desire differences. For other people, it's much more complicated than that, as you point out, right? Part of this gets back to the motivators, right? So for some higher libido partner, their motivator for wanting to be sexual with their quote unquote lower libido partner is not necessarily about orgasms. It's about feeling wanted or feeling close, feeling more emotionally connected, feeling desired, right? And kind of an emotional sense of that. And so if that's what the motivator is, just simply, you know, masturbating to orgasm is not necessarily going to fulfill the motivator. It's not going to fulfill that preference, that desire. And so we'll see the, the cycle kind of perpetuate itself in those circumstances, right? And so for those folks, it really does get back to what are you looking for here? Are you looking for I just really need to feel some physical touch with my partner. Are there ways to do that that don't necessarily involve genitals or orgasms, right? Is it, I need to feel connected. I need to feel like you see me, right? We've been living just busy lives. We're kind of going back and forth, taking care of kids and careers. And I just need to know that you can sit down and, and see me. So maybe we get creative about what that looks like to help fulfill that motivator for the higher libido partner. That term higher libido I think oftentimes people interpret that as it has to be orgasms or it has to be a certain sexual activity. And again, we're never so simple, right? Sex is complicated. Sexuality is complicated. And one of the things we come back to over and over again in this book is that libido is complicated. We need to be asking way more questions of ourselves and of our partners. Yeah, we absolutely do. And, you know, something else to think about in all of this is if Having that physical sensation of orgasm, if that is a particularly important part of this, it's about sort of the physical pleasure, then it might also mean exploring masturbation and trying it in different ways, adding more novel elements to it, right? Because we know that novelty is one of the hallmarks of human sexuality. We need new and continued sources of sexual excitement. And so maybe it's mixing up your masturbation routine, exploring different forms of erotic content and kind of meeting that need for sexual novelty in different ways. So, you know, that's something else that could potentially be helpful here is just getting a little more creative in your masturbation habits if part of what is driving that is, you know, a need for novelty and excitement and orgasm. And so masturbation just might look a little bit different in this case. Definitely can. I mean, I think a bigger issue underlying this conversation is that we are not taught really anywhere in our culture to talk about sex or masturbation, including masturbation in an open, healthy way. And so while masturbation and changing the routine, changing the frequency to bridge a desire difference, that might be totally great for any given partnership. But if partners have never discussed that, and I meet a lot of couples who have never discussed self-stimulation, they don't know how, they feel embarrassed, they feel ashamed, lots of negativity around that topic, as you very well know, right? And if we have not even started to open that conversation, 
information, it makes it harder to address the desire difference. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's not just being able to talk more openly about sex in your relationship, but also being able to talk about masturbation and self-pleasure. So this just goes to the importance of normalizing conversations about sex and sexuality and pleasure in relationships. Because to the extent that desire discrepancies do emerge later or other sexual problems emerge later, if you've normalized talking about sex, it's going to be easier to talk about and find ways to navigate problem areas that might arise in your sex life. Right. So often in sex therapy, we're starting with just, can you learn how to say these words to your partner, right, in an open way and not judging your partner, right? Everybody kind of staying supportive and neutral as best we can. That's a skill set. It takes practice. It takes education to do that. And most of us aren't taught that growing up. No, unfortunately, we are not. (laughs) No. Now, in your book, you talk a lot about Sensate Focus, which is a sex therapy technique pioneered by Masters and Johnson that revolves around the use of non-sexual touch to facilitate intimacy. And it's something that can be very helpful and effective, but it can also be something that's a little challenging to pull off when partners have discrepant libidos because the high desire partner might see it as an obstacle to sex and they might want to rush through it. So can you give us some tips on how to slow down and communicate about touch in productive ways if you're kind of using it as this form of connecting with your partner? That's a great question. And what I would say in some ways at its core, sensate focus exercises really are, and what becomes important here is non-demand touching, right? That's something that Masters and Johnson talked a lot about. Non-demand touching, meaning there's no expectations. We're going to take it in the moment. We're communicating with each other in vivo, in the moment about what's happening. And there's no expectations that it's going to quote unquote lead to more. This is something I hear a lot from people that have identified themselves as lower libido partners in a relationship. Well, I don't want to have affection or intimacy or any sort of touch, even if it's just to hold hands or hug or cuddle, because I don't want it to lead to something. I don't want it to turn my partner on and then they'll get frustrated and resentful and it will lead to, you know, bitterness or an argument, right? That absolutely takes opportunities away for us to build just one connection in our relationship and opportunities for more responsive desire to develop, right? So part of what we need to be focusing on is that non-demand portion, right? So being able to sort of set boundaries with your partner ahead of time and say, and this is what Sensate Focus does very nicely, in this phase of Sensate Focus, this is what the touch is going to focus on. It's not going to lead to anything. It's not going to go anywhere further. This is where we're touching. This is how we're touching. And it's going to stay in this very confined, non-demand environment. And that's why Sensate Focus can be so effective. It sort of creates structurally this non-demand environment in a way that most partners are not used to engaging with each other within. Yeah, as you were talking about that, it had me thinking about, you know, sort of the role of psychological conditioning principles in sexual relationships and how we kind of learn these patterns and routines and cues, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the things that we start to associate with sexual activity. And so if intimate touch is one of those things that we learn to associate with, sex always follows this that can actually sometimes make intimate touch this aversive thing, you know, as you're saying, where I don't want that to lead to sex, so I'm going to avoid doing that. Or if my partner tries to touch me intimately, not even genitally focused, I'm going to pull away and withdraw. And so it's 
hard in relationships when you have these sort of established patterns and routines where you have to find a new way to approach it. And this can be especially challenging in a really long-term relationship where these patterns and routines have built up over years or potentially even decades. So there's a bit of a reset that needs to happen. And I think that's where sensei focus can be very helpful because it's something that's new and different that most people have never really tried before with their partner. And so it's a way to kind of break the mold and reset all of the routines and find out new ways to touch and connect with one another where there isn't that demand or expectation that sex is automatically going to follow. Yeah, I agree. And and that relies on partners following the instructions for Sensate Focus, which is one potential pitfall for people, right? We talk very clearly in the book, and most sex therapists talk very clearly about Sensate Focus is not foreplay. It's not structured foreplay. It's not meant to be. Sensate Focus, they're actually mindfulness exercises. They're mindfulness exercises that you do with a partner. They're not meant to lead to orgasms. They're not even necessarily meant to lead to pleasure. It's really about experiencing touching sensations in the moment. If it feels good, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too, as long as it's not painful, right? Yeah. And it's also a a non-directed activity. You know, there's no goal of it other than just being in the moment and connecting with your partner. It's not to say like, here, you're going to touch for this many minutes, then we're going to switch and I'm going to touch you. And then we're going to have oral sex and then we're going to have penetrative sex. And then, you know, it doesn't follow a script, which is one of the nice things about it. And as humans, we often want that. We sort of crave that. And so we have to be careful in doing sensei focus that we don't fall into that trap, right, of making it about a goal. (laughs) Right. Yes. The orgasmic imperative, you know, the idea of, you know, just any intimate touch is foreplay. Like, it requires a mindset shift. And you're absolutely right. People need to follow the therapist's instructions (laughs) there for how to do this correctly. I appreciated what you were saying about conditioning. So I see a lot of low libido happening because people are having pain with sex, genital pain, penetrative pain. And we talk a lot about conditioning, generalized conditioning and kind of paired associations, because for so many people where sex has been painful, especially for many, many years, they don't want to be touched at all, right? Oftentimes they have become so averse to even cuddling with a partner or kissing or touching in very non-sexual affectionate ways because of generalized conditioning, right? Their partner has essentially been associated with pain. And it, I think, makes a lot of common sense when you talk to people about that. But it's it's often kind of a light bulb moment in my office of like, oh yeah, it's not because I don't love this person. It's not because I'm not attracted to them, but my brain has associated them with this very negative experience with pain. And that's a really strong association for us as humans, for us in our bodies. And it takes a while to undo that. It absolutely does. And I think it makes an important case for why it's important for us to talk about sexual difficulties and to do it earlier on in a relationship. Because if you continue to engage in sex that is unpleasant, that isn't meeting your needs, it's not pleasurable, then that can create that association that sex is aversive or that being with my partner is this aversive thing. And the longer you let that go and for the association to kind of build, yeah, it becomes pretty hard to undo that. So again, it all goes back to the importance of sexual communication, talking about these things early on. Totally, it does. Now, desire discrepancies can have many potential roots, but sometimes trauma plays a role. So specifically, in some cases, you have a higher desire partner paired with a lower desire partner who has a history of sexual trauma. If someone is in that situation, what can the higher desire partner do to be supportive and to avoid approaching sex in ways that are going to lead their partner to withdrawal? 
Yeah, wonderful question. This sort of comes back to communication, right? So for the partners to be communicating, what is potentially triggering, right? Is it a certain type of touch? Is it a way that my partner moves or something about their voice? I talk to a lot of folks who are trauma survivors, sexual trauma and other types of trauma, where if their partner kind of moves suddenly around them or comes up behind them and kind of hugs them from behind, that can be super, super triggering for many folks. If you're the higher libido partner and don't necessarily know that and don't have an understanding of kind of what's going on for your significant other, it makes it really hard to adjust your behavior and be supportive. So we kind of come back to that same communication thing again. We got to be talking about what feels safe to the person who has survived trauma, what feels like something they can tolerate and even enjoy, hopefully, right, when it comes to touch or intimacy that really has to be led in some ways by the person who has survived the trauma as they're healing from that. And that can come in waves and ripples, right? So trauma is not something that we just deal with and then we're done. There are these ripple effects that show up over time, right? Sometimes smaller ripples, sometimes bigger ripples. And so in a partnership, we need to be able to have honest conversations about when those are showing up and how partners are potentially contributing to that. Yeah, and that's another one of those complex areas within relationships, because even if a partner wants to be a supportive partner for someone who has gone through some type of trauma, the partner who has experienced the trauma might be reluctant to talk about it. They might not have worked through the issues themselves. Maybe they haven't sought out counseling. And so that can be another layer that, you know, where there's a wrinkle in all of this. And how do you address that? And I think it has to be all parties agree mutually that they want to help and assist one another the best that they can. But yeah, it can be a a complex issue when one or both partners have this history of trauma. This is a good example of how I want really everyone in relationships to feel like they're a team. The partners in the relationship are a team. It's the team against the trauma, right? It's the team against the world. It's not one partner versus another partner, right? I want our our partnerships to be on the same page so that we can operate together to address whatever challenges are coming up. Cancer, trauma, aging, and sexuality, right? If we're on a team together in a relationship, that makes things much more manageable. Absolutely. Now, another strategy that can potentially be helpful in navigating desire discrepancies is consensual non-monogamy. Now, that doesn't work for everyone. You know, as I've discussed on many episodes of this show, monogamy works great for some people. It's what some people want. Non-monogamy works great for others, and it's what they want, right? So there's no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to relationships. But this can work for some people. So let's say you're the higher desire partner and you're interested in exploring some type of sexually open relationship as a way of kind of bridging a divide or difference in sexual desire. Can you give us some tips on how you bring this up to your partner in a healthy way? Because it would be very easy for that in some cases to go sideways and for a partner to feel threatened or anxious or upset by somebody introducing the idea of opening up a previously monogamous relationship. So any communication tips you can share around that? Yes. And some do not do tips as well, right? So (laughs) learning from experiences that I've heard from patients and clients I've worked with, don't just like leave a a book on consensual non-monogamy lying around where your partner can find it. Don't surprise people with this, right? As with any other potentially challenging or emotionally difficult conversation in a relationship, we want to sort of approach that in a way that's honoring that it might be a challenging conversation, right? So saying to your partner, I've been sort of thinking about our desire difference and I've been thinking 
thinking about some possible ways that I'd be interested in managing this or navigating this. When do you have time to sit down with me and talk about this, right? This is not a like, hey, we're stuck in the car together for a one-hour road trip. I'm going to bring it up now while we're all trapped together, right? That's also a do not do. It is a let's be planful about this conversation so that we can have quiet time, private time, connected time to talk about this because it is a very challenging proposal for many, many people. We want to honor that and make sure that the initial conversation, hopefully conversations plural over time, is done in a respectful way and not just sort of like thrown at the lower libido partner as a surprise. Yeah, you don't just want to leave a copy of The Ethical Slut sitting on their <laughs> desk or nightstand or something. Like, that's not, not the, the way, way. To, to, no, not the way to do that. Not the way. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate you mentioning that there are good and not so good ways of bringing this up. And, you know, something else that I talk about when it comes to sharing fantasies with a partner, and this could be centered around non-monogamy or other types of fantasies, is you want to validate your partner first and, you know, let them know that you are attracted to them, that they are important to you. You value the sex life that you have because when people bring up the idea of opening a relationship, some people feel like that means my partner isn't attracted to me anymore. They don't enjoy the sex that we have anymore. And so, you know, that's where you have to be careful and in terms of how you present this and validating your partner, I think is one of the keys in opening up and starting one of these complex conversations. Absolutely. It's so common. And and I think that makes a lot of sense to potentially feel rejected or to feel hurt when that proposal is brought up, right? So it needs to be done very thoughtfully. Now, for people who want more help navigating sexual desire discrepancies, your book is a great source for that. But if somebody wants to speak to a professional, how do you recommend they go about finding a competent therapist who could help them work through a desire discrepancy? Yeah. Unless I'm referring to somebody, a therapist kind of individually, somebody that I know and I can vouch for, I typically send people to ASECT. So the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. As you know, Justin, ASECT certifies sex therapists, sex educators, sex counselors. So there is a minimum level of training, uh, didactic training in education on human sexuality and gender, sexual orientation, kink, non-monogamy, right? So the whole breadth and diversity of human sexuality. And then required supervised clinical work with individuals, with partnerships, with couples, with families. And so I know that anyone who is ASEC certified, I can trust that they have done significant levels of training, right? And this becomes particularly important in my role because I, I do a lot of consultations with folks that live out of state and sometimes out of country. And so making sure that they're working with somebody who has the training and the competency to help with this becomes really important and sometimes tricky because there's not enough sex therapists to go around for sure. Yeah, there definitely are not enough, but I will be sure to include links to some therapist locator tools in the show notes. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Jennifer. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Jennifer Wenzel. I would love to see folks. Thank you for having me on. Yes. And the new book is called Desire desire, an inclusive guide to navigating desire differences in relationships.
And I will be sure to include a link to that in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Thank you.